Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Catherine Haddon and for this week I'm stepping into the presenter's chair. And that's so that we can unleash our usual presenter, our director Hannah White. Hello Hannah. Hello. Uh, Who has a lot to say about this week's big drama. No, not the fourth season of Succession, though we could say lots about that or I could. I'm talking about Boris Johnson's appearance in front of the Privileges Committee where the former PM was grilled about whether or not he inadvertently recklessly or deliberately misled Parliament. We're also going to be looking at the dramatic developments that took place in another part of the Palace of Westminster on Wednesday, and that was the vote on Rishi Sunak's Brexit plan. Jill Rutter, IFG Senior Fellow and Resident Expert on all things Brexit, is in the studio too. Actually, she's remote, but that's okay. Uh, And she'll guide us through the latest twists and turns. Hi, Jill. Hi, Cass. And I'm delighted that we are joined today by the journalist who led the way in the reporting of Partygate, and that's The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Creera. Hi, Pippa. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So let's start with the top story of the week. Uh, Pippa, uh, I assume you watched it all. What did you make of Johnson's (laughs) performance uh, in front of the Privileges Committee? I did. I watched every single minute of the three hours, 30, whatever minutes it was. Um, So I thought that he would uh, stick to his script and be very calm and collected. And certainly the briefings that we had in advance from his team was that he was feeling very confident about it, that he was across the detail, he was very relaxed about it. And that seemed to me to be the right approach. But what actually happened was he was pretty defensive and got quite tetchy quite quickly, particularly with the committee, the cross-party committee, including with some of the questions from Conservative MPs. And it culminated in this rather odd attack on the committee where he basically said that the best way that they could prove their fairness was by exonerating him entirely of recklessly misleading the House of Commons. And that obviously didn't go down particularly well with the committee. And I'm not sure whether you noticed, but over his shoulder, if you were watching it on a screen, you could see Lord Panic, his his leading lawyer, uh, taxpayer-funded lawyer, slightly raise his eyebrows and sort of shake his head with a slightly wry smile, obviously recognising that that wasn't necessarily the best of ideas to kind of impugn the integrity of the, of the Privileges Committee at the end of what was really quite a robust session. Um, I'm sure we'll get into some of the detail of what was said, but my sort of overall impression at the end of it was that the arguments that he came in with at the beginning, by the end, had started to or gone some way in unravelling and that he ended off the committee hearing in a worse position than that he started in. Yes, it was notable that that bit at the end when he was asked about the remarks that others had made about it being a kangaroo court and and otherwise impugning the fairness of the committee came from Conservative members in particular, Charles Walker. Hannah, um, this was a slightly different committee than we're used to seeing with select committees. What did you make of the committee's approach to their questioning? Well, I think there was a lot of comment on social media in particular beforehand about, you know, were they all going to be grandstanding and so on. And I think I actually thought they did a pretty good job. They were pretty disciplined. They clearly prepared very thoroughly. Uh, They worked well together. Um, Particularly, I thought, uh, some of the Conservative members, which, as 
Pippa was saying, some of the response to, to their questioning was what appeared to rile Boris Johnson the most. Um, but it was notable that they were very much in the sort of what I'd characterise as a, as a barrister style of questioning. So they had a set of facts, they'd put their bundle of evidence out there, and they were asking closed questions in order to test Johnson's responses. Um, and that is a, a different mode of operation. It's a rarer mode of operation for a committee. It does require a lot more preparation to do that. Committees in general tend to operate with more open questioning in order to sort of see what evidence is out there and as a, in an evidence-gathering way. But what I really did notice, um, like Pippa, was, was towards the end some really palpable frustration and anger from some of the committee members uh, to the responses that, that Johnson gave. And I thought he seemed curiously unprepared for the Charles Walker line of questioning. Mm. I thought it was a really good thing that Charles Walker put, you know, put out there the fact that there's been open challenge to this process and put that to Boris Johnson. And I, and I thought the Boris Johnson hadn't fully thought through how he should respond to that. Yes. And I mean, even at the beginning, Harriet Harman, the chair, seemed to start with um, going through Johnson's existing complaints one by one and countering them, including talking about the evidence that had been put out there. Just before we get into the detail then of of what was discussed, uh, Jill, you were in a TV studio for the best part of five hours. Um, What else stood out for you uh, watching it all? I thought it was quite interesting. The bits that really stood out for me was I thought the committee did, as people have said quite well, with starting off with the, did you really understand the guidance? And then asking the Prime Minister how he would square what happened at number 10 with that guidance. And I thought what came out, and this goes back to the sort of root of why Partygate has proved to be such a, such a big and big problem with the public was really number 10. Seemed, and I think the Prime Minister may even really have believed this at the time, seemed to have a totally indifferent interpretation of the workplace guidance to, I think, maybe every other workplace in the country, that as long as you'd put in place some mitigations, then you basically could just get on with sort of business as normal. Um, and it was perfectly okay. And he kept on trying to underline this exceptionalism of number 10. And I thought that was, uh, you know, that for everybody who was sitting there, not judging on the issues of misleading or not, but judging on does the part, does the Prime Minister reflect on why the public was so furious about this? I, I thought he fell very short on that. Yeah, well, let's let's go through that then. Um, Pippa, just be robust and they'll get bored. That was the line uh, <laughs> that we heard about the reaction when uh, they first, Johnson first saw um, your story, which first broke all of this, uh, God, way back when was it October 2021? I can't November even 2021. Now. November 2021, indeed. Um, I mean, what did you think when you first saw that sort of laid out both in the uh, WhatsApps that have now been released and also in um, Johnson's written submission to the committee? It's slightly surreal, actually, because we're used to you know trawling through these sorts of documents and evidence and all the rest of it, but rarely to see your own name mentioned in them, or indeed the name of the my employer at the time, the mirror. But it was also fascinating to see what happens when that email lands, because, you know, it's a daily, it's a multiple daily occurrence to ping off an email to number 10 or a government department and to ask them for a response um, in a quite formal sense. If you're doing it by email, it's quite formal. But what you don't know is what happens when that when that email lands. And um, we got an insight into sort of the other side of the picture and the conversations which took place. 
And I was quite surprised. Well, maybe I wasn't surprised, actually, if I'm being honest, but uh, uh, it was interesting to see the, the the initial response from Jack Doyle, um, then Boris Johnson's director of communications, was to was to be robust and and they'll get bored and and uh, you know the story will move on. Because actually, sometimes to be fair to him, that does sometimes happen if people don't have further stories to follow up on. Uh, I guess the sort of the, we where it all fell apart was the fact not that not least that I've got a high boredom threshold but also that <laughs> that it wasn't just one story that even in that first story there was uh, we referenced several gatherings and I was aware of more that we were working on and subsequently over the course of the following week and beyond we we broke more stories so we weren't just going to go away um and I think that initial email to number 10 gave them an, an idea of sort of the breadth of information we already had so maybe they should have taken it more seriously from the beginning there was another very striking thing from that first evidence bundle that Boris Johnson uh, admitted that he uh, thought the story was what he called a try on mm. um, and that he hadn't taken it very seriously and he wasn't alone in that there was a lot of people in Westminster who were kind of like yeah interesting story but where does it go next or isn't this just a bit Westminster bubble or you know is the this is a year ago will anyone really care and I felt that they I thought that was a misguided response I mean at the time I obviously didn't know where it was going it was going to turn out in the way that it did but I did feel very strongly that the public would care that they even though it was a, a year since some of the gatherings had happened more recent for others we were at a time where the Omicron variant was being talked about again, when rules and regulations were being discussed, we were coming up to Christmas and the anniversary of the cancelled Christmas, and that it would be very pertinent to people. And it turns out that that was right. Hannah, I mean, they pivoted um, from talking about that Johnson's first reaction to it, him thinking that, you know, why would Starmer asking about this at PMQs, which seems incredibly surprising, to why he gave that specific response that the rules and the guidance were completely followed at all times and whether or not he had had sufficient advice to make that. I mean, was there any light on on his decision-making about that? Is there anything that's going to have changed people's uh, opinions about his, his decision-making in that response? I mean, for me, having listened to it all, it, I was left thinking it was just a, a kind of error on his part that he'd been he'd agreed that he shouldn't say it and then he just said it but i think that what the committee was pursuing with that line of questioning and it was my impression that they satisfied themselves on this was that that was symptomatic you could see that as symptomatic of the fact that Johnson hadn't taken enough care mm. in preparing to come to Parliament and to stand at the dispatch box and to to be held to account, and that somebody you know, and this speaks to the you know the the possibility that he was reckless, which is one we know one of the things they're thinking about. He's admitted that Parliament was misled, so we're now on to the next sort of phase of the question: was that inadvertent, or worse, was it reckless, or worse still, was it deliberate? Mm. And I think that 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 speaks to the kind of reckless point, which. Um, I think that, you know, with the questions um, from Alberto da Costa and Bernard Jenkin, they were getting at this point of, should you not have taken more formal advice? Should you not have approached this more seriously? And was it not reckless to come in that way and, and give evidence without having really satisfied yourself as to the full facts? Yeah. And Jill, I mean, you've been on the other side doing um, 
comms uh, inside government, you've been in number 10. The other thing that the committee really focused on was when he then moved from that denial um, later on uh, in Parliament to talking about having received repeated assurances. And the committee really honed in on the fact that it seemed like those assurances had just come from his uh, director and deputy director of comms. I mean, does that surprise you that he was using that phrase when they were effectively talking about a line to take? Uh, yes. Um, obviously, if you've sort of got a, uh, an email landing your desk from Pippa Carrera, your first uh, first question is, what are we going to say in response to this? But um, yeah, with all due respect to Pippa, the line to take, you might get a press spokesman to take with the Daily Mirror might be slightly more off the cuff than what you then say to Parliament. Um, I think what's interesting is, you know, when the Prime Minister first heard about this, the 18th of December party was one of the ones which he said he was sort of unaware of, even though he was working in the building at the time that he didn't attend. So he does sort of, you know, so you can imagine a sequence of events. It's a press office party. So he goes to Jack Doyle and James Slack as you know, press and say, say, you know, the Daily Mirror is saying you had a party. Yeah, what went on? Was this a yeah, what were you doing? So you would go to them to find out what was happening. But then if you were doing this, you would then say, well, okay, so you, you're absolutely sure that's what happened. Now let's say, well, actually, how does that sit against the rules and the guidance that was in force at the time? That is not a call that the press people make. That is a call for policy advisors, lawyers, you know, somebody who actually is responsible for saying, what do we think these rules do? You know, is it within the letter? Is it within the spirit of those rules? Once you've established that, then you bring the press people back along with your parliamentary team, because you're answering and say, okay, well, this is where we are. This is what happened. This is how it stacks up against the rules and guidance. What now can we say publicly? And the bit that seems to me to be forever absent from number 10 what do we say publicly about this that is a line that will hold in the light of any other possibilities <laughs> that we have to address uh, when people sort of, you know, dig out future things? I thought it was a very interesting moment when Bernard Jenkins almost said to the Prime Minister, if only you'd said, you know, well, there were one or two gatherings of people who were in the office anyway, where they had a drink, which we did socially distance as far as was possible in the difficult working environment of number 10. You might not be here today because actually one of the sort of uh, better things you usually do is to try to get ahead of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any attempt of that to sort of say, actually, what can we do to put a stop to this rather than just try and, uh, you know, present a, de- a wall and then... Pippa and colleagues kept on throwing things at it. I was quite intrigued that the committee never went back to the Allegra Stratton video and said, you know, why do you think your press spokesperson, press spokesman at the time, found the line that you seem perfectly happy to take so impossible to take and impossible to square with what actually went on at number 10? Yes, indeed. Um, Hannah, uh, what happens next? I mean, we could spend another three and a half hours debating all <laughs> that happened yesterday, but let's not. Um, you know, at what point are we going to get a decision about this? What are the options that, of what could happen? So the committee's gone away and they have to decide if they want to take any more evidence. They could decide to take evidence from Boris Johnson again, although I think it's unlikely. Uh, they might be further lines of, of, of um, evidence taking. They 
decide to pursue, then they've got to come to a decision. So Parliament was misled. That's been admitted. Did this constitute a contempt? Did it impede Parliament's ability to do its job? If it did, was that um, inadvertent? Was it reckless or was it deliberate? And that, I think, the significance of that is that that speaks to what sanction that they might propose. When they're thinking about sanction, they've got a number of things to think about. If if that's the stage they get to, they've got to think about aggravations and mitigations and precedent. So I don't think there were there were that many mitigating circumstances that came out of the hearing. There were quite a, a lot of more aggravating <laughs> circumstances. So um, I think you know they were get they were asking questions about Johnson's slowness to correct the record. Which they clearly see as, as as problematic, and I don't think he gave any brilliant justification of that that we hadn't heard previously. Um, there's certainly a sort of an aggravating factor around the position he held. You know, he was not just any old MP; he's not just any old minister. He was prime minister, and so that is significant, I think. And then I think, and they really did, as I say, seem annoyed by this. There's the attitude he's taken to this whole process. So I think all those things won't help him if they get to the stage where they think they're thinking about sanctions. And they do have to think about what the precedents are on sanctions. Zooming out, um, they have to think, I think, about the consequences of what they find uh, for Parliament's position in relation to government and uh, you know, what a fin- the finding of this process uh, will, will mean for, for ministers' attitudes towards uh, giving evidence to, to Parliament. Um, but it's not just for them. So they give their recommendation to the House of what should happen, possibly nothing, possibly a sanction. If they recommend a sanction, the House will have to vote on it. Um, And there is that possibility that if they recommend a sanction of 10-day suspension or more, Mm. that would trigger the recall of MPs Act and potentially a by-election. Can someone lay down an amendment if they think the committee's been too tough or too lenient? Or does is it just an up and down on the sanction as recommended by uh, by the Privileges Committee? Uh, no, as with the Owen Patterson case, there there could be an attempt to amend. Um, and one thought that occurred to me is that you know potentially what the committee might choose to do is is to recommend a ten day sanction and then to test the will of the House, ten days or more. Um, you know, people have been given much longer than ten day suspensions. Keith Vaz, for example, for bringing the House into into disrepute, had a six month suspension. They might think that actually, you know, this is a decision that the House as a whole should take and should be given the option to do that. And therefore, they want to start with um, a potential sanction um, that that gives the House the opportunity to take that view. Yeah. And and Pippa, just quickly to finish on this, um, Johnson supporters were saying that obviously the whole thing had exonerated him and he had support. Uh, Taking a temperature of MPs, do you feel like Johnson has got support or is there other anger elsewhere in the House about uh, how this has all been handled and about Johnson's position? I think the sort of the bulwark of Tory MPs that have surrounded him and propped him up um, since he stepped down from number 10 is a diminishing pool. And after the hearing yesterday, I spoke to a handful of Conservative MPs and beyond those whose view hasn't changed that Boris Johnson deserved to be to be exonerated, the vast majority of them 
felt that it was right that due process was happening and that actually what this was was a reminder of kind of the chaos that is on that he has the potential to unleash at a time when they finally feel that the Conservative Party is getting a little bit more back on track with the business of government after a very chaotic few months and that wasn't welcome they 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 didn't like the fact that suddenly there was this reminder for you know the entire country that the, the Conservative Party's recent history has been rather more colourful than they might like it to have been. And that even if they'd once regarded Johnson as somebody that they should support because, at the very least, because of his electoral um, his electoral abilities uh, and, you know, out of loyalty for Conservative leader, um, and at the very most because they actually were keen supporters, that is, you know, at the most now muted and, and also... Uh, there was quite a lot of them who felt that that really actually his his time has his time has passed and and they would rather that he just sort of went away quietly. Pippa, can I just ask? I'm really interested in your reflections because this, I mean, you as Kath said at the start, were, really led this this story from the beginning, and it's a, and it's a story which has has had one way or another really significant consequences for for government in the UK. What are your reflections, having been through through the process? On, on what you've learned about government um, and you know, what you take away from, from the last couple of years of, of investigating this story? So I think the initial reactions to the Partygate story didn't really surprise me because in some ways they were very similar to a story I'd done the year before, which was um, about Dominic Cummings travelling to uh, County Durham and then Barnard Castle within that uh, at, the height of, at the height of the first lockdown. And the response then and this is having covered Boris Johnson for years at the London Evening Standard and and other papers, um, his response when he gets into a bit of bother was always to double down, to deny, to deflect, to obfuscate, rather than sort of put his hands up and say, well, you know, this is what happened and let's face the consequences. And and Bernard Jenkins alluded to this in the committee. He could have taken a very different path through all of this. So when they took the path that they did, it was wasn't a huge surprise because I'd seen it before on multiple occasions and most recently in the most similar circumstances with the Barnard Castle story. What I didn't anticipate, I think, is that that approach would continue. But then I suppose even when the police got involved, when Sue Gray did her investigation, there was still this kind of attempts to re- to recast the narrative by him. You know, Sue Gray's report was a great vindication, apparently, of everything that had happened and everything they'd said about what happened in Downing Street. Well, no, it wasn't. It was a great vindication of all the reporting that myself and others did, every single line of which proved to be correct. And I I think on the flip side of it, I think Parliament holding the executive to account, I've been kind of pleasantly surprised because I think we've seen in recent years through the Brexit wars and beyond, Parliament being undermined and um, and the government kind of, in some cases, trampling quite dramatically all over Parliament. And to see that there are processes cross, that are supported cross-party that exist that can hold the most senior minister in the land to account um, is reassuring at a time when I think all of us slightly feel that our institutions are going th- have gone through and are going through this process of, of real change and which has led to a lot of questioning about sort of trace, trust and faith that people can have in those institutions. That's really interesting. Thank you. Let's
Let's flip our attention to the other big parliamentary story of the week, one that was happening simultaneously, and that was the vote on the Windsor framework. Jill, uh, in short, what was being voted on and what happened? So the vote was on the statutory instrument to introduce what's called the Stormont Break. That's the part of Rishi Sunak's new agreement with the EU, uh, the Windsor Framework, which allows members of the Northern Ireland Assembly to indicate that they don't like a rule change that's coming in by the EU and want to object to it on the basis that it's going to have a uh, significant and persistent effect on Northern Ireland. And uh, so it's technically on that, but it was clear that Rishi Sunak also intended this as the way in which MPs could express a view, something he promised they could do when he announced his new agreement with the EU, express a view on the deal as a whole. So it's not clear whether they'll get any other opportunity to vote on this. So this was, if you like, the parliamentary test of whether MPs supported the deal he did with the EU. And Pippa, uh, it passed. Uh, There was a lot of talk beforehand about uh, what the rebellions would be like. And in fact, we had two uh, former prime ministers, including Boris Johnson, coming straight from that committee room who voted against. Uh, But in the end, I think we had 22 uh, Conservatives who voted against. So Pippa, this was a good result for Rishi Sunak, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he'll be happy with it. I think earlier in the week, the and over the weekend, Number Ten had obviously been doing the numbers and decided that a couple of dozen rebels was the most likely. Um, but there was that moment before the vote where some of the big Tory Brexit beasts, Liz Truss, the IDS, Pretty Patel, Jacoby Smog, and of course Boris Johnson came out and said that they would be opposing the government in the in the vote, where it looked like the sort of full weight of the Tory right, Tory Brexiteer right, might rally in behind them. And there was a, a meeting of the ERG, the European Research Group of Brexiteer MPs, Tory MPs, just before the vote. And reports were mixed on how many people were in the room, but it was somewhere between 20 and 30. And obviously they said that they offered a recommendation to their members to oppose the government. Um, and to vote with the rebels. And there was sort of a moment where we were thinking, oh, actually, hang on a sec here, could this rebellion be bigger? Now, it's worth remembering that this was always going to get through because Labour had already said that they would back it. But I think politically, it was very important for Sunak to be able to get it through on the back of Conservative votes rather than having to rely on Labour. And his majority, Jill will know the exact numbers, but um, his his working majority must be about, what, 70 now or something? So it would only take, it would only, if 22 rebelled, it would only take another dozen or so to rebel on top of that, that would have meant they would have pushed him into the territory of relying on Labour votes. So they will have been relieved. But behind the rebellion lies, a, lies another picture, which is that of the 48 Conservative MPs who recorded no vote. And many of those, some obviously would have been absent with permission, but a large number of them decided to abstain. And what we heard afterwards is that there was quite an effective whipping organization, uh, operation and that um, that people have been persuaded not to um, not to to sit tight this time, even if they had concerns and to, you know to work with the government on what those concerns might be. And the numbers were significant enough to 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 make sure that that not only did the government not have to rely on um, labor votes, but also that they could present it as a you know a, a partial victory. Um, but that's that. However, doesn't detract from the fact that there was a large chunk of Tory MPs that abstained, and that the government's going to have to watch them. But it is does mark, a, I think, quite a striking difference from the days when the Conservative Parliamentary Party looked ungovernable on Brexit. 
now it looks that Rishi Sunak has managed to reach a point, they say through hard work and carefully setting out the detail and convincing and working and spent a lot of time over the last two weeks talking to Conservative MPs and persuading them. He's put in the groundwork and he's got his result. I think Cash Rishi Sunak was enormously helped by the fact that he had some of the ERG's former leading lights in his government. Um, It was not clear, for instance, in the run-up to the announcement of the framework, whether he would face any resignations from his cabinet. People were looking at Suella Bravman, people looking at Steve Baker, a Minister of State in the Northern Ireland office and former, you know, former massive power within the ERG and arguably they're really most effective organised to see whether they come out. And Steve Baker's emerged as one of the big proponents of the framework. So there's a real sort of, you know, those two were part of the sort of Spartans who held out against Theresa May's deal to the last. So I think it's really interesting to see that split emerging between, I think someone said there was sort of, you know, gradualist versus purist of those who thought let's do this and then we can build on it versus others who were holding out and still hankered after the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill as the way forward. Yeah, Hannah, Pippa mentioned uh, abstentions. Obviously, there is voting against a bill, but there is also abstentions. But we should be clear that it's not always uh, not being there for a vote. Uh, there can be a variety of reasons. So uh, what what are the other reasons why there might be abstentions? Do we have a sense of actually how many were rebelling versus were uh, just not there for the votes? I don't think we have, I don't think anyone's yet done a, a really detailed analysis of this. There were certainly some ministers uh, amongst the numbers of, of people who uh, were not did not register a vote at all. Uh, let's assume that they have not decided to, to silently give up their roles in government. Uh, people are always, you know, they're always, apart from in the most sort of crucial votes, uh, slipping uh, where um, the, the whips agree with someone that they can go to the, their child's Christmas play or uh, Easter play or whatever it would be at this time of year, um, or, or be off because they're sick or, or their relatives are sick or whatever. So there'll be a certain number of those. And so we need to really look, dig more into the detail to understand the size um, of uh, the significance of the abstentions, I yeah. think. Pippa, have you, have you seen anything or got any sense of what the numbers were of uh, abstentions that were, as it were, proper rebellion or versus? That's that's one of my tasks for today, my to-do list. Next <laughs> thing to so do great. is to uh, put in calls to the whips and find out what where, how many of them were supposed to be there and and uh, decided to stay away and uh, and how many of them had permission not to be but it is That's... it is it is a, it is a big number though it's 48 so you'd imagine a, a fair chunk of them uh, would be uh, principled abstentions and they're the ones that Rishi Sunak will have to watch because of course even though we had the Stormont break votes um as the first one, there's going to be a series of other votes on statutory instruments and some of the technical details of the of the Windsor framework to come. So there'll be other opportunities for MPs to to have their say in this way. And uh, the work for number 10 and for the whips, Tory whips, can't just stop there. Look forward to seeing that result. Hannah, um, just to say on that, I mean, Pippa's talked about there will be other votes. Uh, initially, Rishi Sunak said that he wanted people to give time, particularly uh, the DUP, uh, to think about this. You've talked a lot about scrutiny lately. Do you feel like this had enough? It felt like quite a rushed vote in the end. Well, there was a certain amount of, of complaint about this being done via a, a vote on a statutory instrument, which only gets 90 minutes of debate and then is an up and down vote, can't be amended. Um, but I think, and um, I was reading a really good piece from Bridget Fowler at the Hansard Society about this uh, earlier today, 
it's the MPs have really rather sold the pass on this. Um, when uh, the people in this instance who were sort of more worried about the Stormont uh, break, which is what the vote was uh, effectively on, are some of the people who in you know past months and years have been perfectly happy to allow uh, big votes on major pieces of legislation to happen with relatively you know little or no scrutiny. Uh, there's been no big impetus to reform the secondary legislation scrutiny process. There's been no um, pressure to give Parliament post-Brexit a decent, uh, decent opportunities to conduct scrutiny of treaties. So this is sort of, this is that coming back to roost in a way. And if MPs don't object to the government giving minimal opportunities for scrutiny when they like what's going through, then it's a bit difficult for them to object when there's something they don't like and suddenly those opportunities don't exist. So I think, you know, it's certainly arguable that, that there could have been more scrutiny around this, but that is a more general problem that I think we've seen. And as you say, I wrote about it uh, last week in relation to the uh, legal migration bill, which I think um, didn't have a lot of scrutiny either. I mean, the end result, and the nicely ironic result is that people like Boris Johnson were effectively voting for automatic alignment with the EU law with no objections. So, which is what Boris Johnson agreed in his Northern Ireland Protocol, which this was superseding. Um, so, the EU updated EU law effectively, they were voting that that would happen automatically with no say for MLAs or the UK government. But, um, but I think Hannah's made a wider point about Parliament and treaties and trade agreements. The reason that the UK needs so little parliamentary involvement here is because when MPs passed the initial trade and cooperation agreement and withdrawal agreement, they gave really extensive powers to a thing called the Joint Committee to change things um, just by agreement between the UK government and the EU with very little role for parliament. Uh, roll that forward, and there are quite a lot of concerns now among people that one of the consequences of Rishi Sunak's machinery of government changes is that the International Trade Committee, which has done a little bit of scrutiny of trade agreements, is being disbanded, and that Parliament action being absorbed into the new into the Business Committee, and we'll have much less focus on that. So Parliament, I think, does need to think going forward: how does it really want to engage with the substance of some of these agreements that the UK? is going to be making with other countries in a post-Brexit world. Yeah, definitely a topic we'll have to come back to. Well, that's it. My thanks to Hannah White, Jill Rutter, and especially to Pippa Creera. Thank you all for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And do leave us a review. Please tell the truth. Uh, there's a special podcast landing in your feeds this weekend to mark the 20th anniversary of the start of the Iraq war. I will be interviewing Robin Butler, Lord Butler, who authored the inquiry into how the key decisions were taken in government. And check out our website for all our explainers on the Windsor Framework, the Privileges Committee and much, much more. Here's hoping for a nice quiet week next week. Have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>